you'll go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 21 as we continue this Lord's Day in our study of Matthew's gospel and his call for us to go to the nations, to go to the, to the field with the gospel. Uh, we're going to look to that today as we look to Matthew 21 and uh, we come to this section of scripture where Jesus is now breaking away from the religious leaders of his day. It's not that he was ever included with them, but now we see a very harsh rebuke as we enter into this last week uh, in the life and ministry, earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, starting with the triumphal entry, that there's a, a large percentage of the Gospels dedicated to this final week. And so it's very important that we study it, that we come to more rightly understand it. So let's look this Lord's Day at Matthew chapter 21. We're going to begin in verse 18 and read through verse 27 this morning. And so let me read the text and then we'll pray for our time in God's Word. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And after seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only be able to do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? And if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray for our time in God's word this morning. Father, we are grateful for your provision in our lives. We are grateful that you have brought us together once again to, to worship this Lord's day. Yet, Lord, in our gratitude, we are also mindful, as we've talked about, as we've gone through Matthew, especially last week, that, that, that this gathering, that the, the things we do while we're here, this can so easily become about us. We, we can get consumed by ourselves. We we can get consumed by our wants and needs and desires and, and by the things that, that are about us. And Father, we can so easily forget that we are not here for ourselves. We are here to glorify you. And we are here to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. We are here to proclaim Christ as our King. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us as we read this morning, as we study this morning, as we seek to understand this morning the, the words and the teachings of King Jesus. And Father, that you would use us to proclaim the gospel of King Jesus throughout our city and our community, our nation, and our world. We pray for these things in his powerful name. Amen. 
As I mentioned already, this is a very important section of Scripture that we're in. Uh, One of the commentators that I refer to often is James Montgomery Boyce, and he refers to Matthew 21, 22, and 23 as the king's final break with Judaism. He he refers to it that way because up until this point in the gospel, we've seen uh, Jesus at times rebuke, but oftentimes just kind of put up with the religious leaders of his day. But, But now something different is taking place. Uh, As Jesus entered into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, he is essentially coming in to say, he is Israel's rightful king. The the king is here. We know from that text that there are many who that day affirmed him as king, but we also know that in just a short time, those same people would be yelling, crucify him. Uh, Their affirmation was short-lived. We saw from there how Jesus went into the temple The temple that, while it was intended to be a house of prayer, a place where people would come and and rightly worship God, it had become, in Jesus' words, a den of robbers, a den of thieves. And so Jesus goes in and he he turns over the table. He expels those from the temple, the, the courtyard there, who were there for the wrong reasons, who had distorted what God's house was to be. And yet we know that too was a kingly act, and yet it was a short-lived act. Jesus had done the same thing at the beginning of his earthly ministry that he did towards the end of his earthly ministry. But we know from history it wouldn't take the temple long to get back where it had wrongfully been. But all of these actions, while short-lived, they are symbolic of something that's taking place, that the king has indeed arrived. And whether or not people affirm him as king does not take away from the fact that he truly is the king. And then we come to what takes place in the text today. I think something else that is to teach us, to instruct us, that's symbolic of something else. Now, you know, the cursing of the fig tree is one of those accounts we read in Scripture sometimes. We often read it out of context. We don't quite understand it. We, we just kind of get this picture of Jesus walking along, and, and here's a fig tree, and he's hungry, and it doesn't have figs for him, and he gets mad and curses it and goes on. And and that kind of gives us this distorted image of Jesus that, that he's kind of got this, this anger issue or, or he's upset that his creation is not serving him as it should. But, but there's something far different taking place here. Something symbolic of what's taking place in Jesus' day. Something that we will continue to see him teach on as he tells us a number of parables after this. So, so we're going to look at this and... And prayerfully, we will learn like the disciples learned from Jesus. There's much here for us to learn. Just like we looked at last week, we may not go and and offer sacrifices at the temple. We may not have to worry about exchange rates and money changers and and whether or not our sacrifice is pleasing. Perhaps they think theirs is more pleasing. Maybe we don't have that exact scenario, but but all of us certainly deal with a scenario of thinking that, that we can somehow earn favor with God. Uh, that there's something we can do to look good to God. And yet the scripture tells us that there is only one who had favor with God and it was Christ himself. And the only way we will ever achieve righteousness in our own life is to be covered by his. There's much we can learn from that. There's much that we can learn from this as well, especially when it comes to the issue of fruit. So we're going to look at that this Lord's Day. And as we do, we're going to answer or at least ask a series of questions. The first question I put in your notes there is this. Uh, is there fruit of repentance in your life? Is there fruit of repentance in your life? 
See, Jesus, as he comes along and he sees this, that this fig tree growing, the text tells us he, he's attracted to it, he's drawn to it because there are, there are leaves on it. Now, I don't know a lot personally from experience about fig trees, fig fruit. I've never been on a fig farm. don't know any fig farmers. Uh, but in, in reading and processing through this text, I learned that, that fig trees, uh, they will produce initially a, a green fruit. And as they produce that green fruit, they will produce a leaf. Uh, that leaf is an indicator that there's now fruit on that tree. And the, the, the fruit over time will ripen and it will fall off. And then after that, the leaf will fall off. The, the leaf is an indicator that there's fruit there. Now, there's a couple of things we have to consider about this text. One is what Mark tells us in his gospel. Mark specifically says of this that this wasn't even the season for there to be fruit on the trees. And so you read that and you think, well, this doesn't seem quite fair. This isn't even the season for fruit. And yet Jesus comes to this tree that has no fruit, which it shouldn't have because it's not the season for it, and he curses it. That, that doesn't quite make a lot of sense. Well, it makes a lot of sense as you go a little deeper into it. You see, this wasn't the season for fruit. Had this been the season for fruit on fig trees, then Jesus likely would have found one without fruit, and then he would have found one with fruit, and he would have ate it, and he would have been satisfied, and we wouldn't have anything to talk about today. But that's not what happened. You see, that tree stood out to Jesus because it was during a time where fruit wasn't on the trees. Well, if the fruit's not there, the leaf shouldn't be there either. You see, the leaf gives the appearance of fruit. And Jesus is teaching the disciples... Something far deeper, he's teaching us something today far deeper than, than how to pick a good tree to get fruit from. What Jesus is doing is he is condemning the appearance of fruit when there is no actual fruit. He, he is condemning when something appears to be one way, it appears to have fruit in it, and upon closer examination it's found that there is no fruit. Well, who does that sound like to you? Well, that's the state of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. In the context that you'll continue to follow through in Matthew 21, 22, 23, uh, Jesus is rebuking the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the priests of this day. Why? Because he says they're like whitewashed tombs. He says on the outside they look really clean, but you go inside that tomb and what do you find? You find death. You find rot. And he's saying that's the same as what he's finding in these people's lives who, who say one thing, they, they say they're righteous, they, 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 they propose to be righteous, and yet upon closer examination it's found, you know what, there's no fruit here. And what kind of fruit is Jesus talking about? Well, I think Jesus is following up on what John taught about. If you think about John the Baptist. Shortly before Jesus' baptism, John is offering a baptism of repentance. People are coming out to be baptized, to, re to repent. And John notices that among those people are the religious leaders of his day. And remember what John says to them. He, he says, who, who told you to come here? Who, who told you to come and flee from the wrath that is to come? You brood of vipers. And then he says this. He says, go bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. What is John saying? John's saying the same thing that Jesus is saying. Say, don't, just, don't just say you're repentant. Don't just wear it like a little badge on your jacket. 
you need to really be repentant. There needs to be fruit of that repentance in your life. And if the fruit's not there, then that indicates the repentance is not there either. Jesus is saying to these people who themselves propose to be so righteous, you, you might think you're something, but you're really not. And friend, sadly, I think that what Jesus is describing with this fig tree is, is much of what we see in the church today. Especially here in the West, uh, here in America, where it seems to be so much a part of our culture that people are Christians. It's not like that in other places in the world. And this issue of fruit is very important for us to look at because we need to really ask this question. Is there real fruit of repentance? Are we really repented? Because if not, we're just putting on a show. And, and that show ultimately can lead to our condemnation if we think that we are somehow saved and we're not. I was talking a few months ago. I was at a luncheon with a missionary who just returned from East Asia. He spent most of, many years there, several decades there. And uh, he was talking about his children. And I was, among others who were asking, you know, what's been the hardest transition for you coming back? His, his kids had all been born in East Asia. Uh, they, that's all they ever knew. They'd come here to visit, but, but that's where they live. Now his kids are teenagers. The oldest are in high school, and, and he's moved back here to the States. And he said the hardest thing wasn't really issues he and his wife faced. The hardest thing was, was trying to help his kids get their minds around something. See, his kids grew up in an area where their, their peers who were Christians, their, their friends in school who were Christians, were, were people whose parents were being imprisoned for the gospel. They were people who, some of them, perhaps, their parents had been killed for the sake of the gospel. That They lived in a part of the world where if you said you were a Christian, you were saying something that could cost you your livelihood, perhaps for some even their life. And so what the struggle was for this family was now his teenage children are here in America, they're in the States, and they're going to school with kids who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian too, but then their life doesn't look anything different than the world. There's no fruit of repentance in their lives, and his kids are, are wrestling with that. Well, well, mom, dad, how can they really be a Christian? There's no fruit of repentance in their life. And it's the same question for you and I this morning, this Lord's Day. If there's no fruit of repentance, if there's been no change in your life, then has there truly been repentance? Because repentance brings with it great change. It's not a change that we work and will in our lives. It's a change that God and His sovereignty works and wills in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Is there fruit of repentance? The next question for us to ask from the text is this. Is there fruit of faith in your life? Jesus as clear as he is throughout the gospel, oftentimes is not understood. And it's not just the Pharisees and the religious leaders who don't understand him. Oftentimes it's the disciples. And we have a situation like that here. Uh, here Jesus, he curses the fig tree. He is talking symbolically of those religious leaders, and yet the disciples don't get it at all. Because their question to him is, how'd you do that? Man, that was really neat, Jesus. How'd you make that fig tree wither up like that? We've never seen that before. They're viewing it more as a gimmick. And yet Jesus, in his grace, his mercy, he doesn't rebuke the disciples. He takes the opportunity to remind them about a lesson that he taught back in Matthew 17 that we looked at about 
faith and prayer. Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what's been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea, it'll happen. And then Jesus says something that I think has been often misunderstood and misquoted in our culture today. He says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. What is Jesus saying there? There are some who would say, well, what Jesus is saying is that anything you want, anything you think you need, if you just have enough faith, God will give it to you. There are some who would say this means that your, your child is sick. Well, that's because you don't have enough faith. If you've got enough faith, your child will be well. There were some who would say that this means that you're, you're struggling at work, you're, you want that promotion, but you've gotten looked over for years. Well, if you just have enough faith, you'll get that promotion. There are some who would say this means... You're, you're not satisfied with life. You're not satisfied with what you have. You want more. Well, you just need to pray for more. And if you pray in faith, God will give it to you. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what the disciples believed? I don't think it is. One, it's very inconsistent with what the rest of Scripture teaches. You think, for example, of 1 John 5. 1 John 5 tells us about asking Verse 14, this is the confidence we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and we know that if He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we've asked of Him. What does that verse say? It says, if you ask it, He's going to provide. But specifically, what's the stipulation? According to His will. I don't want to burst any bubbles this morning, but The God of Scripture is much more concerned about His glory than He is ours. He, he's much more concerned about fulfilling the promises He has made throughout salvation history than He is about these little petty things we tend to think we need to just ask with more faith. Now, I think God is concerned about every detail of our life. But I know from Scripture and I know from life the reality is this, that... You may pray in faith for your child to live and your child may die. And you may pray in faith for that promotion and you might lose your job. And God is glorified nonetheless. Because those things, those sufferings, they are but for a moment. Scripture says they, they fail in comparison to the eternal weight of the glory of Christ our King who will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. You're not going to be standing before the throne Asking why you didn't get more square footage in your house. And asking why you didn't get a couple more initials after your name. You're going to stand there, the scripture tells us, in a praise of an almighty king and an almighty God. Jesus here, I don't believe, is teaching us that when we pray, if we have enough faith, that he's somehow like a, a genie in a lamp and that we'll just get whatever we wish. But I do think he's teaching us something very significant about prayer. You see, we have to be careful that we don't go to, to one end of the, uh, over here where we say that, well, anything I want, God's just going to give it to me. We can just as easily come all the way over here and, and essentially not really ever pray for anything and just say, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. 
And yet, specifically, Jesus tells us to pray in faith. He tells us to ask in faith for things according to His will. And we know from the Scripture, God moves through the prayers of His people and how that all works out. It's so complex, we don't understand it, but we know this. God is sovereign, God is good, God calls us to pray, and He calls us to pray in faith. And when His people pray in faith, the Almighty God of the universe, he, He responds. Maybe not always the way that we want Him to, but he, but he does. And He teaches us in that process. I've shared before, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a good home. I grew up with parents who loved me, who provided for my, me and my sister. and We were a good family, but we were, we were lacking in the gospel. My mother had been exposed to the gospel when she was younger. She had responded to it, but, but she was not walking in faith with Christ and my father was not a believer. I was 17 years old and a freshman in college. The first time I, I remember truly hearing the gospel and God's Spirit awakening me to be able to see the truth of it and the conviction of my sin that, that I was indeed depraved and lost and, and, and I deserved hell and yet God in His love and grace had provided Christ on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for my sins, that if I repented and placed my faith in Christ, I would spend eternity with Christ my King. And, and I responded. And soon after that, I began to pray and ask God for the salvation of my mother and my father and my sister and other people. And over time, I saw my mother begin to walk with Christ and grow in her faith. And over time, others. And over time, God gave me the opportunity to literally go to the other side of the, the planet and share the gospel. But I remember specifically I was there uh, I was halfway through college, I was sharing the gospel in Eastern Europe, and I just remember being burdened that I'd gone halfway around the world to, to, to share the gospel, and yet I, my own father wasn't a Christian. And sure, I'd talked to him, but had I talked to him enough, and, and I was real convicted because I hadn't been praying for him. So I'd kind of taken this, this lazy attitude towards prayer. Well, God, you're going to do what you're going to do, so I just got to get out there and get about your business, and you're going to do what you're going to do. But God convicted me. He didn't promise me anything. He didn't say, well, if you do this, I'll do this. But I knew what His Word says. I know that it wasn't His will that any should perish. I know that some are going to perish. I know that everybody's not going to repent. But I knew the heart of God was for the salvation of people. And so I started praying for my dad. And I remember specifically, not because God said He was going to do anything or I had any secret code or formula, but I just remember being burdened to pray for my dad every single day. And, and I did. I, I don't... I can tell you there have been days in my life since then I have not prayed. There have been very few things I've prayed for that persistently, but, but I made sure every single day I got on my knees and I cried out to God for the salvation of my father. And you know what happened at the end of that year? Nothing. But I kept praying and I kept asking. And, and it's a long story, but I'll just bring you to the conclusion of it. I was with my father one day. Sometime later, and he turned to me and he said, Son, how long have you been praying for my salvation? And at the time, I thought he was mad and he was going to say, Stop it. But then I heard my dad say something that, that at that point, I, I don't know that I really believed I'd ever hear him say. He said, This week, I, I surrender my life to Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and he's your Lord too. God didn't owe me that. He didn't do that, I don't believe, because all of a sudden my, my faith, it, it hit the spot on the meter where now he's going to do something. 
But I tell you, it, it taught me something about what he says here. If we'll ask in prayer, we'll receive if we have faith. I don't think that's a promise that no matter what we ask, he's going to do it. But I do think he's teaching us something there about prayer because when, when he says, listen, don't, don't, don't pray and then doubt. I think there's a connection here. I don't think the connection is, well, if you have just an inch of doubt in your mind, he's not going to do something because if that's the case, God would never answer prayer because in our flesh we, we all struggle with doubt. I think he's saying something bigger. I think he's saying that when we go to him in prayer, we, we don't go to him like we're scratching off a lottery ticket. Hope I get it, hope I get it. No, didn't get it. Now, I don't buy lottery tickets. Leland told me how that works, but... At least you leave here, as some of you may, and say, the preacher said we could buy lottery tickets. But, but that is how we approach God sometimes. We, we go to Him, and we, we're, we know there's something, it seems, in the Scriptures according to His will, and, and, and yet it looks so impossible to us, it probably looks more likely that a mountain will get thrown into the sea, then He'll do this. And so maybe we pray once or twice, but like we're scratching that ticket off, it's like, okay, Lord, will you do it? Uh, you didn't do it. Okay, well, I guess it's not your will, and we just move on. And yet God calls us to pray and pray and pray. And you see, the thing in Scripture is God never seems to be real concerned about our timeline. I mean, think about his people. They wander around in the wilderness. Not for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. or 40 years. 40 years. God it's going to be glorified, but it's not through doing things the way you want them done, how you want them done, when you want them done. He's going to be glorified as he molds us and shapes us to be instruments who will praise him and worship him. And if we pray, as the scripture tells us, he, he is doing that in our lives. And so the question is, 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 is there fruit of that faith in our life? Or is our faith just kind of flippant, not real serious? Yeah, I guess I'll pray because I'm supposed to. Think of the context here. What, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? What did he say to the priests when he was in the temple? This is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. Christ is calling you and I, is calling his people to pray in such a way, to pray in faith. question is, is there fruit of that in our lives? And then third, the last question I placed there in your notes not only do we need to look for that, that fruit of repentance, that fruit of faith, but lastly, is there fruit of Christ's authority in our lives? In verses 23 through 27, we see another encounter Jesus has with the leaders of his day. Now, he's there in the temple. He's there probably in that, that temple court we talked about last week. He's, he's teaching. And then they come up to him and say, Whose authority gives you the right to do this? By, by what authority are you here? You see, they saw themselves as the authority. That they had the proper schooling. They had the proper status. They were the authorities. And yet here is one who is challenging that authority. Here is one who people are following and listening to. This is, this is unrest for them. This is unsettling for them. And so they confront Jesus, probably a delegation of them, Come, and they ask this question. By, by what authority are you doing this? And Jesus, as he often does, he responds to their question with a question. I, I don't think he's trying to be evasive here. I think he's trying to show a point here. He's using this as an opportunity to teach them and others. 
He says, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. The, the baptism of John, where did that come from? Now, Jesus knew that by asking that, he, he's got them. Because if they say, well, that baptism, well, that was from God, then they are affirming what John said. And what did John say? John was a forerunner to Jesus. John is the one who baptized Jesus. John is the one who, who points to Jesus as he is the Messiah. I'm not qualified to baptize him, and yet, according to the Scripture, Jesus says you need to. From that moment forward, it is likely that John's proclamation was consumed with Jesus is King. Jesus is King. Jesus is King. And John had his moments of doubt. We know that he asked, are you the one or should we look for another? But we know that was his message. And so if they affirm that that baptism was from God, then they've got a problem there. And they realize that as they start to process through this stuff. They say, well, if we say from heaven, then he'll say, then why don't you believe him? Because if they believe him, they've got to believe Jesus is who he says he is. So on one hand, they've got that to deal with. On the other hand, they can always say, well, John's baptism was for man. And then they've got a real problem on their hands. As the text tells us, they know exactly what's going to happen if they say that. See, John was considered a prophet by the people of his day. And they know that if they stand there before all those people in the temple and say, this guy's not from God, this guy's not a prophet, this guy's just a man, and his prophecy's just from men, they know that that's going to be the end to them. Because the people are going to riot and the people are going to be upset. And as they say here, they were afraid of what would happen. And so, they cower. And they say to Jesus, we don't know. Now, they don't say we don't know as you and I would say we don't know. You know, I'm watching Jeopardy with the kids. I don't know. I don't know who knows that much about 16th century Roman urns, but apparently someone does. It's not me. I don't know. I say I don't know all the time. That's not what they're doing here. They're refusing to answer because they realize no matter what they say, they're not the authority they think they are. They don't have the authority that they've claimed to have. They don't have the authority to say these things. Why? Because they're not sent from God. They are from man. And they're facing very God, very man, in flesh, Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah, who Himself has already said in the other Gospels we've read that He is from God. All authority has been given to Him. He'll repeat that in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All authority is mine. It's not that Jesus is afraid to say that. It's not that He's being evasive about it. No, He's wanting to put them on the spot to show something. They're not who they think they are. But he is exactly who he says he is. He has all authority. Now this is very problematic for us. Because the reality is most of us, we, we want the benefits of the cross. We, we want to go to heaven. I've rarely met someone who said, no, I don't want to go there. You know, that's what we want. But we're not willing to die to ourselves for it. See, you and I, oftentimes, we don't want to respond to the authority of Jesus any more than the religious leaders of his day did. We want his stuff. 
We want His name. We want to be called Christian. We want to come to His church. We want the benefits of all that. But oftentimes you look at our lives and they don't look real different than the world around us. And yeah, it's a repentance issue, it's a faith issue, but I think primarily it's an authority issue. Because every one of us come into this world and we demand to be king of our own lives. And a lot of times that demand doesn't go away the day that we confess Christ as Lord because many of us don't even understand what we're doing. And yet the Scripture tells us, the Scripture calls us, Jesus Himself says, okay, here's how it goes, guys. You want to be my follower? You want to be my disciple? Basic steps here. Die to yourself. Take up the cross and follow me. Now, we want to skip to the third. We want to follow him. We want to carry the name Christian. That whole dying to ourselves thing, man, that's not high on anybody's list. And yet, when we respond rightly and biblically to the authority of Jesus in our life, what we are saying is, Jesus, you're king. And if I'm honest with Jesus as my king, I've got to tell him, there's a lot of times I like sin better than I like him. A lot of times I want my sin more than I want him. But see, this, this isn't the little cartoon with the devil on one side and the angel on the other, and which one do we do? He is king, and I'm here to serve him. So, so it's not really me to, up to me to say, well, Jesus, I know this is wrong for everybody else, but, you know, there's always exceptions, and I'm pretty sure I am one somehow. And so this, you know, I'm sure it's okay if I just kind of, yeah, okay. No, he's authority and what he says we need to do. And sadly, the reason so often we don't open up his word is because we know if we do, we're going to read something that tells us, oh man, I'm convicted now. And we're going to be burdened by our sin if we live rightly with him as our authority. And so the question again is, is there fruit of that in your life? Is there fruit of God just so burdening you over sin in your life that you just repent? Is there fruit, dads, of you having to go to your kids and saying, kids, I'm sorry I yelled at you in the car because you know every one of you have. Maybe on the way to church today, which I've said before, I saw that. I don't yell at my kids in the car on the way to church because we drive separate now, but, you know. But we, we lose it with our kids all the time, dads. There's that fruit of, of, of repentance in your life and of the gospel in your life. It's a great teaching moment to go to them and say, you know what, Daddy blew it and Daddy's sinful and Daddy loves you and Daddy needs your forgiveness and oh, how Daddy needs God's forgiveness and He graciously gave it on the cross through Christ. And the only reason I can come to you today and ask you to forgive me because God's forgiven me and isn't that a glorious thing? Moms, have you gone to your kids and done that? Wives, have you gone to your husbands, husbands to your wives? Because that's what the gospel looks like rooted in our lives. And if there's no fruit of that, then maybe we've just got some leaves. Maybe there's not a whole lot there. And if that's the case, then the answer is simple. It's in the scripture. It's we need to repent and believe. Matthew 18, we need to turn to become like children. We do that through confessing Christ as Savior, through repenting of our sin, through placing our faith in Christ. And I invite you this Lord's Day, I invite you every Lord's Day, at whatever moment God's Spirit so overwhelms you to respond to the gospel.
to repent and to believe. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for the glorious words of Jesus that we've read this morning. We are reminded that any time we open your word, it is Christ speaking to us. He spoken to us today through this word in front of us. And so, Father, I pray that we would respond. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be like those who, who look to Jesus and say, well, well, do you really have authority? You really who you say you are? Father, I pray that we would understand that he is authority, that he has all authority. He has authority over every person in this room today. Perhaps there's some here who doesn't think that. Perhaps they think this is a bunch of foolishness. Lord, I pray that you would show them as you've shown me and shown others that no, it is we who are the fools. It is the gospel that is the truth. That your spirit would overwhelm them and call them to repentance. Father, for those who have done that, perhaps decades ago, but, but maybe right now their fruit is lacking in their lives, fruit of repentance, fruit of faith, fruit of the authority of Christ. Lord, your word for them is the same, repent. We, we can turn in this moment and embrace the gospel. And I pray that they and others would, and we pray for these things in the glorious name of Christ. Amen. If you go ahead and stand with us. We want to close with the opportunity, an invitation to respond. If God is working in your life, calling you to repentance, calling you to, to come and confess Him, to, to share about that with others through baptism, perhaps He's called you to come and be a part of this church family. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe God has burdened you this morning as I share that story about my dad. Maybe there's somebody in your life who you, you have more faith that a mountain's going to go into the sea than you do that they're going to repent. Would you pray for them right now and for others during this time of invitation?